Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and this episode is focused on some common vaccine questions, namely, where are they, how many have we received, and when can we expect to receive more? And I'm joined by the person best placed in our country to answer those questions, the Minister of Procurement, Anita Anand. She and her team have worked around the clock for over a year now towards procuring PPE, rapid tests, and most recently vaccines. And we discuss some of the challenges they faced, the rationale for Canada's approach to vaccine procurement, and what we can expect going forward. After frustrating supply chain issues, Anand and her team have worked to expedite the delivery schedule such that every Canadian should receive a dose by Canada Day. Anita, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nate. It's great to be here. Now, there has been a lot of angst about vaccine deliveries in my community, obviously, across the country. But there's also been a lot of misinformation. I don't want to sound too partisan, but I saw Premier Ford tweet and then delete a tweet about the fact that supply constraints are still an issue, even though millions of vaccines happen to be in freezers at the current moment in which we speak. And I saw other conservative politicians at the provincial level tweet the same thing. And of course, federally, even we've seen politicians in the opposition suggest that vaccines are not going to be delivered for, at one point it was years, it it sounded absurd at the time, but where are we at today? And and let's clarify the situation, certainly for my constituents, but other listeners. Well, it's a great question. And I just wanted to say that throughout all of the procurements, whether we're talking about PPE, rapid tests, or vaccines, I am totally focused on the procurement angle of it, not the political angle. And so in terms of the facts, Uh, We have already seen delivered into this country 10.5 million vaccines. We will see 44 million total prior to the end of June and 110 million vaccines prior to the end of September. Those are the facts. And we'll continue to get millions and millions of more doses into the country. 3.2 million doses over the next two weeks, 6 million doses prior to April 19th. So you can just see the ramp up, Nate. It is accelerating very, very quickly. And it does require all of us, all levels of government to continue to work together. That's the space that I'm operating under in terms of making sure that the information that is accurate is out there in the public domain. We exchanged emails some time ago. I think it was maybe at the end of January and you were attending before the industry committee. Maybe it was early February. And there were difficult times in February, supply constraints and obviously the retooling of the facility in Europe and then the the scare that the EU was going to throttle supply at the time. And we exchanged emails to say, these are difficult times now, but with the supply coming, we are going to be in a very good place shortly in March and then in April and in the months beyond. That probably still holds true. It does hold true, but let's go back to those months and even the months before that. What we did last August and following on from there is to put in place a series of bilateral APAs or contracts with multiple international suppliers with Pfizer. With Moderna, we were one of the first countries to sign with those two. With AstraZeneca, one of the first countries to sign with AstraZeneca in terms of not having domestic production, but uh, you know, still getting a contract with them. J&J, one of a handful of countries 
to be able to sign with J&J. And so we put these contracts in place, which really signified a diversified procurement approach. What that means is that we can pull vaccine from multiple sources. And that's exactly what you're seeing now. We are seeing Pfizer delivered into this country by the millions every single week. Moderna, AstraZeneca, J&J is coming at the end of April. And we have Novavax in regulatory review. So that diversified procurement approach is continuing to deliver benefits for Canada. We didn't just choose one vaccine. You know that we took advice from the vaccine task force and then executed our deals. But we're very heavy on Moderna and Pfizer right now. We have 40 million doses of Pfizer, 44 million doses of Moderna. I call those vaccines our workhorses. We're really relying on those mRNA vaccines to deliver for Canadians as they have been. And just today, NASI came out with guidance, really reiterating the faith in the mRNA vaccine. You mentioned the vaccine task force. Mm-hmm. In end of April, May, it gets struck. We, we heard from the chairs of the task force at our committee, and they said that they really got to work, I think it was the end of May and early June, with reviewing everything that possibly could be reviewed in terms of what vaccines of the hundreds of potential vaccines that maybe would come to fruition. And they identified a number of vaccines for Canada to procure. And then someone from that task force comes to you and says, here's what we want, Anita, go get them for us in the midst of a a global race to get the vaccines and competition from every other country. Tell me about that process in June, July, and, and, and whenever it was happening. It's actually so fascinating in my view, and I wish you could be there, you know, back in July to just see what happened. It, the vaccine task force provided a letter to the Public Health Agency of Canada recommending us to go and procure seven main vaccines. They considered over 200 vaccine manufacturers and narrowed it down to seven, which is incredible. They chose a variety of vaccine types to be procured. So mRNA, viral vector and protein subunit. And we then took that document as our marching orders and said, we've got to secure these contracts as soon as possible. Then we got to work and entered into negotiations in early July through July, entered into contracts with the seven suppliers in very short order. And I just want to say that to reach a contract with a supplier does not happen overnight. That's hours and hours of negotiations back and forth. My conversations with my team about individual components of those contracts to make sure that they were the best terms possible that Canada could get, especially in light of the fact that there was no vaccine developed at the time, no vaccine had passed stage three clinical trials, no vaccine had passed Health Canada or any other country's regulatory approval. That's the environment we were operating in on. It was full steam ahead. I can remember late, late Saturday nights in the beginning of August, having conversations with my deputy minister about these particular transactions and the terms on which we were negotiating to put Canada in the place it's in. As a result of those negotiations, and I will say the way in which Canada is perceived in the world of vaccine manufacturers, we have been placed in good stead. The Pfizer deliveries at the beginning of December were as a result of our negotiations with Pfizer. Moderna, same thing. And people often focus on Canada's rankings in the world in terms of the 
doses that have been administered. I just want to make sure that people understand that those rankings, when you see Canada as 40th in the world, the countries there, A, have much smaller populations, but B, are taking a vaccine from companies we did not negotiate with. Uh, we are really looking at the best of the best in the world, right? The mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. Now, what is my job every day? Accelerate doses bring doses forward. So just because we have these seven contracts doesn't mean the game is over. Far from it. We've already accelerated 22 million doses from Q3 to Q2 or Q1. So that means more and more Canadians vaccinated earlier and earlier. And I think you talked about your your brother-in-law in the US. Well, we are moving rapidly as well despite the fact that we don't yet have domestic production. That lack of domestic production, the comparator often becomes, well, the U.S. is doing so, so much better. They obviously not only have domestic production, but they've also prohibited exports, unfortunately. And that's put us in a position to acquire from the EU manufacturing facilities. What role do you see the U.S. playing? Obviously, we got a million and a half AstraZeneca doses from the United States recently, and that is very welcome. I've heard Biden say, and rightly so, Canada and Mexico are their priorities as a matter of economic recovery and, and to reopen our economies as North America sooner than later. How is that relationship going to play a role in expediting the process? Let's just take a step back and talk about diversification in terms of geographical location. So I said to my team last summer that we've got to make sure that we're able to pull vaccine from multiple geographical locations, because at the time we had uh, a president in the White House that did not want to export to Canada. We experienced that with N95 masks. So we, we deliberately looked to multiple locations. So Europe, India, South Korea, and the United States were all part of our discussions, as an example. And on top of that, we have been negotiating with the U.S. government for acceleration or additional doses that we can pull from there under our current bilateral agreement. So that 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca that arrived last week was only possible because we had AstraZeneca under contract being produced in the United States that the U.S. could then turn around and say, okay, we will do an exchange with you. We'll give you 1.5 million now, and then you can later return that to us once your supply under your bilateral agreement starts to come. So I just want to say that we are really leaving no stone unturned. We are speaking with governments. We are speaking with uh, manufacturers like the Serum Institute. We are speaking with suppliers all over the world all the time to make sure that we're getting vaccine here. All the while you are seeing vaccine nationalism take hold around the world. So the fact that we do have millions and millions of vaccine coming into this country is despite the fact that countries are to some extent hoarding vaccine and making it more difficult for there to be a global uh, equitable uh, sharing of vaccine around the world. Sure, it is the most precious commodity as we speak. And you mentioned international efforts and vaccine equity. Well, there is a facility, COVAX, that we've contributed a significant amount to. We 
withdrew from COVAX, though, and there was some criticism. Obviously, we want to see equity as it relates to vaccine access around the world, and we haven't seen that. And COVAX is an important facility to ensure we do see that. But the facility itself, as I understand it, was set up in such a way as to encourage countries to contribute knowing full well that one of the incentives to contribute is that countries were going to be able to draw from, that it, that's not a failing of the program, that is actually a key feature of the program. You've hit the nail on the head there, Nate. Let's just look at the structure of COVAX for a moment. The structure is that there are two parts to the facility. The first is to ensure that there is distribution of vaccine to developing countries. And the second is to allow developed countries, G7 countries, for example, to contribute to the facility, to be able to purchase a limited number of vaccine while subsidizing the production of vaccine for developing countries. So what Canada did is it gave $220 million to each of those facilities. We are one of the highest contributors in the world to COVAX. We are, as a result, not only able to take a very limited number of vaccines for Canada, but more importantly, continuing to provide subsidization to the production of vaccines to the developing world in a pooled procurement mechanism, which is what COVAX is. In addition to that, we have Karina Gould, our Minister of International Development, playing a leading role in the governance of COVAX. And she and I have been working closely on this file. And we both are in agreement that any extra doses that Canada doesn't need will be shared with the developing world. So it's not just COVAX that we're looking at in terms of being able to assist developing countries. It's a recognition that in Canada, if we get to a stage where we have extra doses, we want to share them with the developing world, given that no one is safe unless everyone is safe. And I truly believe that the prime minister has said it multiple times as well. I always see it in three kind of categories of action as it relates to equity. One is COVAX, two is the donation of excess supply. And we're gonna have a lot of excess supply and not only excess supply as it relates to what we have under contract to date, but also ensuring that Novavax facility and through the NR partnership with the NRC, that it also contributes to global vaccine equity on a going forward basis. And then the, the third piece though, unfortunately we haven't taken a position that I would like us to take yet. It's not your portfolio though. So I, I won't push you on it too much, but the TRIPS waiver, I, I spoke to Paul Farmer recently who was emphasizing the need to support the TRIPS waiver. We've taken not an oppositional approach, not, I would say sitting on the fence, if I'm being a little bit fair to say we're asking questions and we need more information before we take a firm view one way or the other. But that would be a third category I think we ought to act on going forward. When we look at COVAX, though, $220 million, 15 million doses, and I do the basic math and I see it's just under $15 a dose. Now, I can't see the prices of the other agreements that we have entered into. You get this question a lot, I see in the House, but I get this question locally. 
where are the details? And presumably at some point we're going to see the details. Uh, tell me timeline of greater transparency and why that transparency is limited in the short term. So listen, there are essentially competing objectives here. We need doses in Canada. We need vaccines. And in order to get vaccines, we have to comply with our contracts. Like all other suppliers around the world, we have confidentiality agreements or clauses in these contracts that we are complying with. If we were to breach those clauses and be in breach of the agreements, the vaccine suppliers can say, look, you're in breach of your contract. We're not giving you doses. We're going to send those doses to other countries that didn't breach those contracts. But by the same token, I, as a legal academic in my former life, believe in transparency and accountability and want to provide information to the Canadian public. So I say to myself, how can I do that? I've gone back to the vaccine suppliers to say, can you provide us with redacted versions of the contracts that we can share with the Canadian public? And that's the stage we're at right now, because I do believe that we need to create a balance here without jeopardizing our vaccine supply. When everyone is an armchair critic, as you have discovered in the course of this job over the last number of months, I'm sure, but when you stop and think back to the spring and to July, you get given your marching orders from PHAC and the vaccine task force, here are the seven vaccines, go off and get them. And there's obviously massive competition globally. We enter into agreements my understanding is with Moderna first and then with Pfizer shortly thereafter in late July and then early August is then late September that we enter into other agreements, including with AstraZeneca. Is there anything you do differently knowing what you know now, if you could do it again? So great question, just to put it into perspective. So Moderna and Pfizer were July and August 1st, uh, respectively. So July 24th, August 1st, then we did J&J, August 24th, Novavax, August 27th. Sanofi, September 11th, AstraZeneca, September 25th, Medicago, October 22nd. Okay, that's a lot of work in a very short amount of time. Uh, in terms of what I would do differently, I think we got to take a step back and look at the pandemic as a whole. Okay, because the way I look at procurement is we really did three mountains of procurement. We did first mountain PPE, 2.7 billion items of PPE procured. Second mountain, rapid tests, 40.5 million rapid tests procured. Third mountain vaccines, we have procured up to about 400 million doses if you include options for with now eight suppliers, if you include the Serum Institute. So it's really been a monumental effort, the largest task of my professional life. And in terms of what I have learned, it has been the importance of made in Canada solutions, the importance of relying on and building up domestic capacity. In terms of PPE, for example, now 40% of our contracts by dollar value are with Canadian suppliers. And that lesson continues over to vaccine production. We've got to make sure that we've got made in Canada domestic production, as well as these multilateral agreements with multiple suppliers coming from internationally. And so the domestic component isn't, of course, in my portfolio. That's Francois Philippe and I said, but we support that ministry from a contracting perspective, Medicago is based in Quebec. Novavax MOU is with production at the National Research Council facility in Montreal. 
And we've been investing in research, $126 million to the NRC last year, uh, over $500 million to invest in vaccine research, including at Vito Intervac in Saskatchewan. So there is really, I think, upon reflection, a need to maintain these two tracks, whether we're talking about vaccines or PPE or any other product, domestic production, as well as relying on other supply chains. You make a good point that the vaccines were being procured in a context where your team, a relatively small team, from what I understand, all things considered, for the amount of work that you were undertaking over the course of the last year, but you come out of negotiations from PPE, move into negotiations as it relates to rapid tests, and then you're jumping into the most important negotiations as it relates to vaccines. I, I do wish provincial actors were using the rapid tests that you procured in a more serious way. That's, I think, been, for me, a major failing of pre-vaccine pandemic response at the provincial level. If they were using all of the rapid tests, I would say we should procure more, and maybe there would be constraints on that end. But until such time as they were being completely exhausted or being demanded by the provinces, I would say it's it's on them. The, the Made in Canada approach, I think, is a good lesson to be learned. We certainly heard from the vaccine task force. Their advice was, in the short term, this diversified portfolio approach that you've undertaken, and in the medium term, short-term investments now, but that are going to then be realized in a medium term the way that Novavax will be. When we look at countries that have succeeded in an incredible way over and above where we are at, and so the US has domestic manufacturing capacity, the UK is another comparator. Unfortunately for us in Canada, where where do our friends and family have friends and family? It's in the US and UK, so we get bludgeoned with that, I, I think, a lot in our politics. But when you look at the UK, is it because they just really emphasized AstraZeneca? They went all in kind of on AstraZeneca and they were able to make that work. And if that is the case, is it possible that we could have proceeded down that road in, in any way? If someone says to you, why aren't we like the UK? What, what do you say to them? Well, I think you got to take a step back and look at our diversified portfolio, right? We have heard today from NASI that the benefits of the mRNA technology are really stark and important to recognize in the middle of this pandemic. And yes, we could have gone all in on one vaccine like the UK did, like many European countries did, but we chose to go diversified. We chose to diversify the risk. We chose to go heavy on Moderna and Pfizer. And those are the workhorses in our vaccine portfolio. So my own view is that this is a story that is still being written. We are still understanding the benefits of the vaccines individually relative to one another. And from our vantage point in procurement, we are very, I would say, glad that we have a diversified portfolio that we can offer Canadians multiple different types of vaccines. And indeed, the fact that the mRNA vaccine is one that Canada is very heavy on is a very important thing to note from a procurement standpoint. May have been more challenging in the short term, but will potentially pay greater benefits in the longer term, especially as it relates to variants from, from what we know. Exactly. Exactly, Nate. And just, just remember, I just think we have to remember that when we signed these contracts with Pfizer and Moderna, the first two contracts we signed, we didn't know that they were going to be 95% effective. That information came out in November. So we had these 
contracts. And we were very glad that we did execute them, that we did move very quickly with those with those suppliers. We also didn't know that those would be the vaccines that would be effective against the variants. We also didn't know that NACI would recommend that those vaccines are very, very useful for the Canadian population. And so in a way, we were needing to diversify the portfolio in the first instance in order to put us in a very advantageous spot in these later instances. And the other competitor that gets thrown at us a lot is Israel, because they're just miles ahead of everyone. And that was a very unique agreement that they had with Pfizer, to my understanding. And in part, my understanding, I could be wrong, though, was the way that their jurisdiction was set up, not only the relationships potentially that the administration had with Pfizer, but also the unitary state, the population within a a relatively small geography, and obviously the information they were willing to share. For those who are less familiar with what Israel was able to undertake and why they were able to undertake it, how was it different than what we were in a position to give to Pfizer? So there was a unique arrangement between Pfizer and Israel that was offered particularly to Israel and related to personal data of the citizens who were being inoculated. That was not an arrangement that Canada was going to be entering into. Uh, Notwithstanding that, we did say to Pfizer, we need vaccines here as soon as possible. And what we are hearing from Pfizer, from Moderna, and from the vaccine suppliers as a whole, J&J, Novavax, AstraZeneca, is that Canada is a preferred country for them to distribute vaccines. We are preferred country to negotiate with. We come to the table. We are honest. We are forthright. We are sophisticated and we come to the table with fortitude. And I will say that uh, we haven't yet seen J&J into this country, but it's coming this month. And that is a real example of the way in which Canada has been able to secure an APA when many countries around the world have not been able to with this company. Uh, So again, this story is still being written, Nate. We are still in the middle of our vaccine procurements. There is a long road ahead of us, a long road of cooperation with the provincial governments, with the territories, with the municipalities. And my viewpoint is just bring as many vaccines here as possible and then let them be distributed as quickly as possible to Canadians. Well, it's been great to see. I'll be honest, we, at the industry committee, when we were undertaking hearings in, this was before virtual parliament was even stood up in a fulsome way, but we were holding hearings in the spring and vaccine procurement, vaccine production was not on the agenda from any party at the time because there was an expectation that it would take a significant amount of time to develop these vaccines. So it's incredible sitting here talking to you today that we have vaccines at all, let alone the millions of vaccines. And it's not like you just enter into these APAs, the advanced purchase agreements, and then we're done. That there's been this constant reach out effort to say, how can we how do we seize every opportunity to expedite the process? That's why I do not ever take my foot off the gas. That is why I am constantly engaged with these suppliers because we need to continue to emphasize the importance of getting vaccine here as soon as possible. And so you saw Pfizer uh, recently moved up 1.5 million doses 
from Q2 to March. And that was as a direct result of those continued conversations where every time I say, what can you do for Canada? What can you give us? We want as many vaccines here as soon as possible. And they have been, I will say, despite the difficulties that we saw in early February because they were retooling their plant in Perz, Belgium, that they have come to the table and they've given Canada supply. And indeed, getting, getting supply out of Europe is no small feat. So not only are these suppliers uh, working with us to get vaccine here, but they are working their companies in Europe so that Canada can get its fair share of supply that we've negotiated for under contract. And you talk about companies then moving committed doses up to, in this case, Q1. And and then I know Pfizer also committed to bring another 5 million doses up to Q2. The quarterly delivery schedule why a quarterly delivery schedule? Why not something more specific so that we aren't saying 44 million doses by June, but then it's hopefully we see it in April and May. And why in negotiating the contracts do we see the quarterly schedule? Well, you know, I'm really glad you asked that question because people assume that you could get a weekly schedule. No vaccine supplier was willing to give a weekly schedule in contract when there was no vaccine even produced or discovered. So they were all providing quarterly schedules. There was really no possibility for weekly delivery schedules prior to the time where a vaccine wasn't even discovered. No vaccine had passed regulatory approval. So in fact, getting these contracts and getting quarterly delivery schedules was a feat uh, in and of itself. And I think that people look back at that time now that vaccines have been discovered and say, with hindsight being 2020, you should have been able to get weekly schedules. If you go to those vaccine suppliers, they will tell you they were not giving weekly delivery schedules because there was no vaccine it discovered at all. It's a bit laughable thinking with such a a level of uncertainty that you would get a weekly schedule that would be enforceable in any event, right? That even if you were able to set out in some fashion, some promised weekly schedule, there is no way a lawyer on behalf of a major company would say, and yes, Canada, you're going to hold us accountable for failing to meet that schedule. There is zero chance that that would have been committed to. So it's possible maybe that they could have sketched out a fake schedule, but the the quarterly schedule that we have is an enforceable one. I, I've seen Moderna executives speak publicly to say, if we don't meet our commitments, then we are going to suffer. The contract provides a, a, a serious enforceability mechanism. Well, you know, Nate, I really appreciate the level of questions here because they are based on an understanding, it seems, of what contractual negotiation involves. You have to remember, I taught complex contracting, securities law, corporate governance, contract law, and uh, advanced securities regulation for 22 years. I understand complex contracting, and I understand, like you appear to as well, that you're not going to get terms that you want in the very first instance if there's no product to see in terms of its production. We did not have vaccines. There were no vaccines in the manufacturing process. There was no ability to predict the timeline of production if there was no discovery at the time of contracting. Therefore, we were operating, as you say, in a period of uncertainty. 
and notwithstanding that uncertainty, to be able to get these contracts in place and actually see vaccines here, that is incredible. And I, every day, say that to myself, that we really have vaccines here. And we will continue to bring vaccines in to this country and work with the suppliers. Now, we've had situations where we've discussed acceleration, of course, of doses. And that's what's continuing to go on. We've got the base contract, and we'll continue to negotiate for accelerated doses. And that's how we will make sure that vaccines are getting here sooner and sooner and faster and faster. You know, it's funny, this question of hindsight being 2020 and everyone saying you should have done this, you should have done that. Having gone down the rabbit hole a little bit through the industry committee, honestly, the only thing that I could point to realistically would be on the made in Canada approach going all in with the, it sounds like based on the conversations we actually had at the industry committee meeting and and that you had with colleagues of mine, that we did try to say to these companies, including AstraZeneca, give us the option to to make it in Canada. And, exactly. and that didn't pan out. So that would have been one approach to say, let's try to bring at the NRC facility. Let's try to make AstraZeneca at the NRC facility. That would have been one hopeful approach. We're obviously able to make Novavax there now. The, the other would have been, again, AstraZeneca, seeing the UK enter into an agreement at the end of April, really early on because of the relationship with Oxford, because of that vaccine task force just being more apprised of the work that was going on at Oxford, probably, they moved much more quickly on AstraZeneca, and then were really able to lean into it. Now, our vaccine task force didn't recommend doing that in quite the same way, said, here's a diversified portfolio approach and go get the agreements you can with these seven companies. But even then, that everything has to break right, and nobody knows exactly how, and I can only say with hindsight being 2020, maybe we should have done that. That is really tough to think these were the obvious ways forward. So let's just take a step back and remember that my ministry's procurement and Francois Philippe's is, is domestic production. So I had to go like gangbusters on those seven vaccine suppliers. And I, like in the PPE instance, had to leave domestic production to ISED. And that was the kind of division of labor going forward. And having said that, you did see, I said, move in terms of investments in the NRC, as you said, in Medicago, in Vito Intervac. And so the, the domestic angle wasn't lost. It just wasn't as expeditious as these seven agreements that we reached with international vaccine suppliers. And we will see vaccines made in Canada. And we're continuing to see uh, additional investments, even in the area of the flu vaccine with the Sanofi deal that was recently announced. Um, But again, my focus has to be on those seven agreements and getting vaccines here as soon as possible. Indeed, I should say eight, because I said that we went after the Serum Institute because we knew we could get the AstraZeneca vaccine from them if we could get a deal. I started talking to them last August, contrary to what the opposition is saying. And I've been negotiating with them consistently for that deal for 2 million Covishield AstraZeneca doses that came uh, that are coming from, from the Institute. It's an ongoing, ongoing effort we do not sit back and say those contracts are in place and therefore our work is done. Not at all. And I just won't rest until we get uh, all of our vaccines here. 
it's funny watching the politics play out in the course of this pandemic in the House of Commons federally, where I think the Conservatives at times have been right insofar as rapid testing. We need more rapid testing. And then when we deliver on rapid testing, the provincial Conservatives don't use them. And then they are out to lunch when it comes to this. The one story that's bothered me the most probably has been this idea that we put all our eggs in this Cansino basket. And we had then the president of PHAC come before us and say, no, this was one approach among many others. And we were focused on all opportunities. And this didn't detract from anything else that we were doing. But I've even seen the media parrot that one in a really frustrating way and then land in our inboxes. That has been one of the issues that I I simply look at it and say it's it's incorrect to view the Cansino deal as the only deal we were pursuing. It's simply wrong. Where do we begin? First of all, the CanSino deal was not an APA like we have with Pfizer and Moderna. CanSino was a research arrangement. Exactly. It emanated from ISED. All the seven agreements that I've discussed with you emanated from my department on the advice of the vaccine task force. These weren't research deals. These were vaccine procurement deals. So there are different types of deals. So for anyone to say that we put all our eggs in the CanSino basket is complete disinformation. It is inaccurate. It's a misrepresentation of the facts. And uh, the proof is in the pudding. In fact, the reason why we're being able to draw vaccine from multiple suppliers is because we didn't put our eggs in one basket. We put our eggs in multiple baskets so that we could ensure that we had access to multiple millions of vaccines. Well, talk about misinformation. Let's finish where we began. And we have 44 million doses that are expected to be in this country by the end of June. And we already have 10 and a half million doses in this country. And you know, it's not only the 10 and a half million that are here today, it's the millions that are coming in the next week and then the following week alone that is going to increase capacity such that the provinces here in Ontario, at least, is really going to have to work to, to even keep up with what they've got today, let alone what's coming in the next two weeks. But let's talk about where we expect to be. 44 million doses. There are 30 million adult Canadians. And we hear a lot this concern that there's been this four-month delay based on NACI recommendations. But when I'm doing the basic math, 30 million adult Canadians, I, I wish every adult Canadian wanted a vaccine, but not every adult Canadian is going to want one. And so we're going to have millions of additional doses over and above everyone getting an initial dose by the end of June. We Before Hillary left, he said, we hope that everyone gets a first dose by Canada Day. I think that should be the expectation still. But when you factor in J&J as only one dose, maybe, maybe clarify the numbers a little bit and what we can expect by the end of June of the 44 million, how many are J&J and the one dose? And so how many Canadians can we realistically expect to be vaccinated? Maybe not right by the end of June, because maybe some get delivered in the last couple of weeks, but, but by early in the summer. The 44 million doesn't include our J&J numbers because we're still waiting for delivery schedule from J&J. So if I break down 44 million, it is 17.8 million Pfizer, 12.3 million Moderna, AstraZeneca, 4.4 million, and add that to our uh, 9.5 million that we got before the end of March, and you get 44 million. And so we'll add J&J in there once we get that delivery schedule. Right now, the J&J numbers are in 
the 110 million at the end of September. We will be very well placed to have enough vaccine for every Canadian who wants one prior to the end of June and two doses prior to the end of September. But as you said, very much the process will rest on the administration of the vaccine at the provincial and territorial level. And I just want to say that despite all of the noise, I feel that we are all working together in this. I don't have the appetite for criticism at this stage. I only have the appetite for collaboration, and I will continue to do whatever I can to support the provinces and territories in this monumental effort. We are all working towards the same goal. We're also all public servants that have worked for over a year on this pandemic, and we all want the same result. We all want to go back to life that we know. We know, And so all I can say is the sooner the better, and I will be always collaborative at the table. Well, Ania, thanks for joining me. There's a whole conversation I want to have with you about procuring goods and services in the federal government as it relates to reducing pandemic risk and and the greening government pledge and more but that's a topic for another day i think and keep up the good work and i think we are going to wake up near the end of june and 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 otherwise sometime in the summer and we'll realize that this has happened much faster than that end of september commitment from the get-go and i appreciate your even keeled handling of the not only the negotiations but also just the the politics of it all in the end. So keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Nate. But as you know, as I said, I, uh, I'm i not overly focused on the politics. I'm just trying to get this done. And, you know, I really appreciate this conversation and a chance to talk at greater length about some of the crucial issues that we've faced as a government over the past year. So I'll look forward to future conversations about managing risk. I will have to speak at it uh, from a contractual standpoint, because that's what we do. We're supporting government in terms of our contracts. So I look forward to that conversation. And maybe I'll get to ask you a question or two, Nate. You can ask me anything you like. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks a million. Thanks, as always, for joining me here on Uncommons. Vaccine supply chain issues have unquestionably been a frustration in recent months. But as I said in the conversation, it's also hard to discern exactly what we could have done differently. The UK moved more quickly to partner with AstraZeneca and then to build domestic capacity, but their investments in manufacturing also predate the pandemic. And Israel had a particularly unique agreement with Pfizer early on that no other country replicated. Many countries ahead of us are not only smaller in population size, as an and referenced, so a difficult comparator, but a number are also relying on Chinese and Russian vaccines, which would not have been acceptable in Canadian politics, I don't think. It's possible, of course, that we could have paid more for an even faster delivery schedule, given the massive spending to support individuals and businesses and the great and really tragic human cost of the pandemic. It seems straightforward that we should have spared no expense on vaccines, but we won't know more on that front until further down the road, based on that balance between transparency and our apparent contractual obligations that Anand mentioned. One major challenge that the minister referenced as well has been our lack of domestic manufacturing capacity, 
and there are many efforts underway to ensure that capacity is restored such that we're in a position to help supply the world for this crisis and to maintain our own supply for any boosters if necessary and for any future crisis. We'll try to put up a post at beynate.ca that lists those investments, which I think might be helpful. And that's also where you can conveniently reach me if you have suggestions for guests or topics for future episodes of Uncommons. As always, please do leave a positive review if you like what we're doing. And since we've talked about vaccines on this episode, let me simply leave you with this. Yes, it has been frustrating at times, but supply has come. It is coming. We are going to be out of this crisis soon. We all need to continue to bear down and follow public health measures in the interim. And as soon as we are eligible for our vaccines, whichever vaccine it happens to be, let's make sure we go get our shots. Mm-hmm.